Good evening, listeners. It's April 16th, 2017, and you're tuned in to KBVR Corvallis 88.7 FM. It is currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Kristen Finch. And I'm Steve Friedman. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature this, the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we're joined by Antonio Gomez from the Department of Integrative Biology. Hello, Antonio. (laughs) So, Antonio, we'll start with uh, who is your major advisor and how far along are you in your degree program? Uh, My major advisor is David Madison. And I am a third-year student, third-year PhD student. Great. And you want to just start off by telling us a little bit about what you do? Sure. Uh, So I'm nuts about diversity, and I study a group of beetles in particular that are really diverse. There's 40,000 species around the world, and there are aspects of their evolutionary history that are very well known and aspects of it that we need to flesh out a bit more. And I'm studying them from a perspective of just what's out there. Like, what are the species? Where are they? Uh, Do we know their names? And documenting their diversity. And then also understanding their relationships and using DNA sequence data to understand which species are related to which other species. And then I'm also really crazy about structural diversity. And somehow, in the course of my time as a PhD student, I got really interested in reproductive characters in beetles, and in particular, sperm are crazily diverse. They're actually the most morphologically diverse cell type known. And I'm studying the evolution and diversification of sperm in carabid beetles and trying to get a sense of, well, why are they so diverse? And what features, what traits are uh, correlated through time? And what features in the female seem to be also co-varying with these features in the male. We'll so, definitely come back to that, but I was going <laughs> to ask. Okay. <laughs> I was going to ask first. Um, so we there are all these beetles. Why do we want to know um, in what or how they're related, and how many there are, and what we yeah. should call them? Uh, I think a lot of that is that you know we're not the only things out there, and this is all for our enjoyment. That we're not alone on this earth, and there's value to knowing what else is out there, and they're serving. You know, insects especially are serving all these ecological functions of uh, tremendous significance and that if we care about those kind of things and if we care about the earth, I think it's really critical that we know what's out there in order to conserve it, in order to uh, understand it, and in order to enrich our own lives. Um, Studying evolution in general is really complicated, right? There's a lot of species on earth and you even said there's a lot of beetle species specifically. Um, and then looking at like all these genomes, there's a lot to look at in there. So, uh, how do you, you have to like pick out parts in order to study how they've evolved. How do you, how do you focus in on, on something, 
um, I guess you said you've, you focused in on structural stuff, but mm-hmm. um, how do you, I guess, break down Beatles and then, you know, pick something to study within that? I guess that's, uh, yeah. that's, a, that's a complicated <laughs> question. Do you mean like what uh, what information do we use to yeah, yeah. reconstruct that's, relationships? Yes, exactly. That's, an, that's a great question actually because a lot of what I'm doing to – a lot of what I'm studying in terms of sperm morphological diversity might not be the best uh, information for understanding relationships in part because it's clear these uh, traits are evolving rapidly and divergently even among closely related things. So if they are changing, and if we think it can change really easily, then maybe they're not good for understanding these relate these uh, splits that took place over millions and millions of years. I mean, carabids we think have been around for more than 200 million years, and I'd have to look at some of the primary literature to get a better date on that. <laughs> um, so we're talking a really old group, and lots of diversity in traits, and so you There are those that are interesting because you want to know about uh, rapidly evolving uh, forms. And then there are those that we think might be really good and informative at these deeper scales and that are that are stable and reflect the uh, these evolutionary events that we can't witness. Um, So even though I'm I need a, a tree, I need a phylogenetic tree in order to illuminate these patterns. I probably won't, I should say, I definitely won't be using the reproductive traits to, to infer that tree. Instead, I'll probably be using many, many, many hundreds of, of genes, or at least that's the plan. And so uh, just how, how easy or hard is it to use millions of genes to figure out how two groups of beetles are related? Yeah, well, I should first <laughs> include that I actually haven't done this, so... I don't have firsthand experience, but uh, we're little by little gaining some experience with this and uh, trying to get familiar with the pipelines. And it's interesting because it's one of these things that is kind of a it's kind of a buzzword, the the omics and that we're working with big data sets and you start getting into it. And maybe this is really foolish and naive of me to say, but there's a lot of steps that that you go like this actually isn't that hard to do, or at least it seems like I can do this. (laughs) Everybody else seems to be doing it. We can do this. Um, I think the thing that makes it really hard is that uh, visualization, I would probably say, is one of the hardest things, that you have all these hundreds of genes, and potentially you're thinking about not just hundreds of genes, but hundreds of genes in one species, and you're planning on going after a tree for a group of organisms that's diversified, and there are th- maybe thousands of species that you would love to have in that tree. Like, how can you look at your, like, how can you look at your alignment and or your data and actually make sure that it's not messy, that you're, there isn't a bunch of noise introduced in there, and that you are actually comparing apples and one, like apples to apples, that you're comparing things that appear to be the product of that same evolutionary event in one thing with another thing. And that's really, really hard to do. So I guess what you're, what you're saying there is that you might say we have 100 genes in this one species that we're interested in, and we want to compare this species to a 1,000 other species. Mm-hmm. So we want to make sure the 100 genes in species one are the same 100 genes in species y- yeah. two. Yeah, and that, and that they're relative piles. So if you've got like gene 101 in species A, you want to make sure you're comparing that with gene 101 in species B and so on. Because if you start mixing then you're just throwing all these things that are products of different events and potentially have their own histories and you might be just creating something that's totally artificial 
Mm-hmm. Um, so the next step, and, and uh, we kind of avoided this, and I want to swing back to it because okay. I'm sure most listeners immediately perked <laughs> up when they heard your intro here. Um, <laughs> or ran away, maybe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, so, all right, you have hundreds of genes you're comparing in these, okay. in these, you know, more typical phylogenies, these evolutionary yeah. trees. Uh, and to dive in, right, you usually have to focus in on one. If you really got to get in depth, you got to pick, you know, a more narrow thing to mm-hmm. really dive into. Yeah. And you picked physical character evolution of sperm. Is yeah. there, can you explain that? <laughs> so, um, I guess there are many reasons why I got into it. One of them is... Uh, just that reproductive characters in general are fascinating. So there's this one book that I really enjoy by this one guy who's in Costa Rica and is doing this awesome work named uh, William Eberhard. And he published this book called The Evolution of Animal Genitalia. And it's amazing. Like just looking at the figures through there, it's like if you're into structural diversity and just incredible forms, genitalia are where it's at. (laughs) And so... As part of that, if you look at sperm um, and just look across the the tree of animals, you see amazing things, things that make you question, is that even a sperm cell anymore? And just basically, if you can imagine it, it's probably happened. So that includes uh, sperm without a nucleus. That includes sperm without tails, sperm with many tails, uh, all sorts of modifications to the very few organelles that they do have. Uh, arrangements to the um, the mitochondria that power their flagellum, and it just like it seems to just go on and on and on and on. And there had been some background research in the group of beetles I care about, carabids, that seemed to suggest things were pretty interesting. But it was and still is less than one percent of all those forty thousand species out there. And I started dissecting a couple. Some local things that everybody would think who cares about carabids would go like, oh, that's a totally boring beetle. You got it at, you know, the Crystal Lake Sports Complex. (laughs) But then I started dissecting them and getting them under the scope. And I would see instead of just like a single, like if we imagine in our head what we think when we think sperm, just like this single cell, like this solo voyager. Instead, (laughs) I saw this big rod and several hundreds of sperm cells attached to it and embedded in it. And it kind of looks like a shuttlecock or something like that. And then I dissect a different beetle and it looked like it still had a rod, but instead of being really straight, it might be in the shape of a corkscrew and there'd be maybe thousands of sperm attached and, the, and so on. I dissect another and <laughs> it quickly just picked up speed from there. I wonder how the Crystal Lake Sports Park feels about this. <laughs> <laughs> the diversity of sperm. You might not love this, this endorsement. <laughs> okay, well, um, I just wanted to say, so I, for people at home or listening abroad who maybe think beetle or uh, studying genitalia is where it's at sounds kind of like a strange thing. <laughs> we do, in the plant world at least, and I'm a botanist, we do study plant genitalia, of course. Flowers and yeah, fruit totally. are all all in yeah. pollen yeah. are the sperm of plants. Mm-hmm. So it's not that off the wall. But I'm um thank you for that explanation though. So um <laughs> are you finding that there are very distinct patterns? Are they very uh individual species specific or are they I guess you kind of hinted at they're maybe not the best for dis- differentiating species, but um Yeah, there's there's a famous quote out there 
uh, by somebody who uh, was one of the early comparative morphologists of sperm who claimed that they're so variable that you could even use them to tell spe- one species apart from another. And I, I suspect that that'll be more true in certain groups of life than others. I can't say that I've dived down that deeply to, to actually start looking at, like, let's say, within a, a species group that maybe started diversifying a million years ago and trying to see if there are differences. Um, and I'm right now for my project really trying to understand what's the what's the pattern what's the distribution of traits across this big family of beetles so i i don't i don't know too like i can't really answer so that too well in terms of being to be, able to tell left to be seen for but, your follow-up interview yeah. on inspiration <laughs> dissemination <laughs> that would be interesting to see <laughs> okay well i want to know how you i feel like you didn't just end up wanting to study beetles all, or from the time you were a no, wee yeah. child. So I was wondering when you decide, or I guess you can go back as far as you wanted to tell us when you became interested in science. Yeah. Uh, oh, in science, that's going to be tough. <laughs> that one actually might be very neb- like I, that's probably a really nebulous one because um, it'd be hard to pick a single moment. Uh, but certainly, when I got interested in in insects and in the idea of understanding and appreciating uh, the tree of life, that happened as an undergrad. And it happened in part because of, of mentors, people who really pushed me to gain new experiences and to join them in field work and to take on independent research projects. And so a lot of that happened as, a, as an undergrad at the University of New Mexico. Could you, uh, could you then, you know, you said you had mentors. Was it, was it in a class and you had a great teacher or did you get involved in research and that really kind of, yeah. uh, I guess, fanned the flame? Yeah, a little bit of of both, I suppose. But um, but the time when it really uh, was very eye opening was when I got involved in an undergrad research program at UNM, and that was in part I was being spurred on by by professors. And I remember some of the first times going and asking for a letter of rec, and it was really weird because <laughs> mm-hmm. professors didn't know me. Uh, I I just knew them up at the front of the room. I was never a student who really went to office hours, and um, I I they encouraged me to participate more. And I eventually um, met a scientist at UNM named Kelly Miller, who studies uh, a big group of of beetles called diving beetles that are really cool. They're all over the world. If you were to go to a, a local pond, you're probably going to see them, and. He was building, he was doing a lot of fun stuff. He was going all over the world. And, and I mean, I'm talking lots of places all over the world. You know, he, I think by the time I met him, he was coming back maybe from a trip uh, from Madagascar or something like that. And he was building collections and showing me how we document biodiversity and how we describe species. And this was something in my mind. And I think this is still pretty common among people I talk to, that there's this sense that that's all been done. Like, wasn't that done in the 19th century? Didn't we figure all that out? And like we get, you know, nature papers will, you can get a nature paper if you're, you know, discovering a new dinosaur. But I was finding with Kelly, like here he was and he was describing tons of new species of water beetles from, uh, from Venezuela. And he would go somewhere else and he'd find some and even ones that were already described, you could go through and study stuff in, in, in museums and realize, oh, there's a bunch we don't know about that we already had in our collections, 
And we just didn't even realize it was there. And so that was uh, definitely a big light bulb moment for me, mm-hmm. realizing that you could actually have a career studying this sort of stuff and really appreciating it. And you were able to do an undergraduate research project with uh, Dr. Miller? Yeah, yeah. So um, he, when I first met him, so he didn't at any point, I don't, at least I don't remember <laughs> him <laughs> saying, hey, I've got a beetle project for you and I like beetles and that's what you're going to study. So that, that <laughs> conversation didn't happen actually, or at least not till later when I did get to do some, some beetle stuff. But initially he was saying, all right, I've got a grasshopper project for you. And there was another student in the program I ended up being a part of who had already started it a little bit, and um, he was going out and he was collecting uh, morphological data. So he was studying these grasshoppers under the scope and trying to make assessments about these features. So in kind of the same way I was telling you about you want to make comparisons between this gene and this same gene in two species, he was doing that except looking at, like say, the wings of a grasshopper and making sure that he was comparing some part of the wing and one species to that same part of the wing in another species and using that to try and reconstruct relationships. So you, and, uh-huh. yeah, sorry. So you, you were, the first project is really just like you take a little dissecting scope, uh, mm-hmm. like a small microscope, you put your grasshopper specimen, you, you really just stare at them and look at a feature yeah. and say, okay, this one, you know, this is what it looks like. And then you pull out the next one and say, yeah. this is what this part looks like on this one. And you keep comparing it. Yeah. And hopefully you're finding new differences and you can, you know, is that, that's the day to day. Yeah. That was, that was more or less it, that, that, uh, we already had a lot of the, the specimens in this one particular group. We, we had them and pulled them from, uh, collections, uh, around North America and I was working with the expert in this group of grasshoppers that are bandwing grasshoppers. And I was also learning how to extract DNA and sequence DNA. And this is, and we're still sort of in this world, uh, insect folks, um, where we were going out and sequencing a couple genes. I think I sequenced three genes and then combined those data sources to infer this tree mm-hmm. and understand this, this group of grasshoppers. Um, so, so after the grasshopper project, um, did, did you have an interest in beetles right away and like grasshoppers you're like, oh, okay, I'll work on the grasshoppers for a bit. So then did you get to go to grasshoppers after that or to beetles after that? <laughs> Sorry. Um, I think it was probably as a result of, of some collecting trips with other people in the lab. And there were, there was a student who was interested in moths and then there was a, another student who really liked beetles and we went on trips just in New Mexico, I definitely, you know, had a blast doing that. Got to go on a trip to um, a sister park in in Mexico. So it's the sister park of White Sands in New Mexico. It's called Cuatro Cienegas, and it's in Mexico. Got to do that and just experience uh, field work for the first time and how you go out and collect bugs. And it's really about being the bug, as it were, because they do all these different things. So you kind of have to set yourself in a mindset of, like, if I were something that li- really liked fungus, where would I be? Or if I... In my lab. <laughs> <laughs> yes, I'm sorry. <laughs> Probably. You should check for that. <laughs> the fungus are there. <laughs> and so getting, getting some exposure to that was, was a ton of fun. And, and that same thing, that there, there are phases of discovery, which is also really cool. That you go out and you collect a bunch of different stuff. But at the scale of sort of just seeing an insect in the field and maybe you've got a hand lens, you might know what you've got. But then there's this other phase of discovery where you take it back to the lab and you look at it under the scope and you might have 
two things that you thought in the field, oh, I know this, this is species whatever. And then you take it back and you realize, oh, actually there are two things here and I don't know what this other one is. Mm-hmm. So things like that were really, really fun for me. And did you, were you able, so I do know that you had another uh, experience with beetles as an REU student, yeah. right? Will you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yeah, so that was, um, so the, in the program that I was involved in, the, um, I don't think I named it, the Minority Access to Research Careers that I got involved in, their plan was that you spend one summer, so it's a two-year program, you spend the first summer at UNM doing what you'd been doing, working on your project, and they get you set up going to conferences and all this. And then you spend the second summer going somewhere else, which is, is something really important for people uh, starting off. Going somewhere else is a, is a very good thing. And I got really interested in this being my opportunity to do something with, like, to do something with Beatles, to start getting into that community a little bit. And one of the people who I was really interested in was this guy named Dave Cavanaugh who's a senior curator. He's since retired, but he was senior curator at the California Academy of Sciences in San Francisco. And he had, or at least the advertisement was for uh, a study on some beetles from China. And he had, of course, this like amazing picture of this ridiculous metallic green beetle. And you think, that's real <laughs> when you look at it. And um, I went out there, and I was fully expecting to work on these very colorful uh, um beetles that are really quick runners uh, from China that he's been doing a bunch of sampling there. And instead he goes like, hey, you know, I don't, uh, no, let's not do that. Instead, (laughs) he hands me a a drawer with uh, beetles that are maybe, you know, three millimeters to five millimeters large. And they're they're all deep uh, leaf litter things. And there were maybe about 12 species known. And he said, hey, you know, check these guys out. I think there are a couple... New species, we could work together, get something together, get a paper together. And in this eight or 10 week long program, you'd get something out of it at the end and we'd have a product and you'd have a paper. And I remember working on it and finding one new thing, a second, a third, and so on. And by the end of it, I think there are 15 undescribed species in this genus that's endemic to Madagascar. And it quickly became way too much to do in, in eight weeks. And, of course, this is actually a, a pretty common pattern. And, you know, 15 new species actually isn't all that many, <laughs> actually. So that was like, oh, wow, yeah, there are a lot of beetles moments. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> I just want to remind the listeners really quick that you are listening to Inspiration Dissemination on KBVR Corvallis, and we are sitting down with Antonio Gomez from Integrative Biology. And Antonio was telling us about a great undergraduate experience. But the next thing I want to know is how you decided. So you are an undergraduate and you have already you've got like two projects under your belt. You've done grasshoppers, Mm -hmm. figured out some things about those. Also some Madagascar beetles. And now you're going to or now you're thinking, okay, I'm about to graduate this awesome program, been doing a lot of undergraduate Mm -hmm. research. How did you decide then to go to graduate school? And did you go to Oregon State right after, or did you do something else? Yeah, so that was at a point in my life when I really, I liked this stuff. I wanted to do more of it. And I had already gotten to a a meeting. There's there's two, um, 
this is getting into meeting names, so I won't, <laughs> won't go down that road, but um, an entomological meeting, and they're a blast. There's like a bunch of nerdy people who all love doing the thing that you like doing, and it's it's a lot of fun actually being in that setting. And so I, I already kind of had some had some exposure to who was out there, and some of the people I met at this meeting were, were professors I was interested in, in studying under, and one of them uh, was uh, Wendy Moore at the University of Arizona, and I was initially really gung-ho at the thought of doing a PhD, that it seemed like that's the next step. And, and, I, and I mean that in a sense of uh, being a, a sort of an unsure, unsure of my future and feeling like that, that the very linear story that we all tell ourselves is you do this and then you do this next thing and then you go and then the next step is, is graduate school naturally. Like that's what you do. And, um, and I applied, and even though I had told Wendy I was very interested in being a PhD student, I actually switched it at the last minute and actually said it was to be a master's student. And um, I was actually talking to the graduate students in Kelly's lab to get a good sense of what they thought about doing one over the other. And I'm very grateful to have done my master's. I think it really gave me a good perspective on uh, what graduate school is actually like, uh, what can be achieved in two years, and two years went by awfully fast. And me now as a third-year PhD student, it seems like it really hasn't been <laughs> that long. Um, and that was a lot of fun because it got me out to it was it was you know it was different from from uh, it was different from UNM. I got to sort of leave that that area and do something new, but it was close enough that I was. Get, I was gaining new experiences, and I really enjoyed uh, living in Tucson, and it's got incredible insect diversity, and um, it was a lot of fun. Just imagining the brochure for Tucson, that's an incredible insect diversity. Move here now. Um, which is appealing. So you, wouldn't, so you might not know it, but uh, there are tons of people now. Well, tons is a strong word. There are a bunch of people in the insect community that are moving out to Tucson because they, they like it. And it's got, it's got some pretty interesting, uh, it's got some pretty interesting species because it's part of the Sonoran Desert. And it's fun being there during the monsoon season because it's like this desert that basically comes alive. And um, there are a bunch of uh, mountaintops in that area, and a lot of them have uh, some endemic species. And uh, my project was was looking at them a little bit and trying to understand what the diversity was in this one particular group of beetles that hadn't been very well studied and still hasn't been <laughs> very well studied. Very cool. Well, how did you then, so you were not done after a master's. That's surprising. How did you decide mm -hmm. that you wanted to keep going on <laughs> yeah. with graduate school? Right. You wanted to do a PhD. <laughs> wanted to do a PhD to no, say you I'll didn't want to do it. But, yeah. And then now you want to <laughs> do it again. And then decided, okay, I, I, can, I can foresee doing this, that I, I like this enough and uh, I want to I wanna do more of it. I, I, and it, a lot of it was that discovery is a ton of fun and if you enjoy that oh my god like insects have got it in spades and a lot of that is just because there is so much unknown that it's basically you'll you'll never be bored with them and during some of these uh insect meetings i in addition to meeting wendy and a bunch of other colleagues um i also met my current advisor david madison and i knew he was out here at oregon state and I really knew very little about Oregon. You know, coming from the uh, desert southwest, it 
was pretty foreign. <laughs> it was a foreign idea to me for sure. And then spending time in Tucson and really falling in love with it, I knew it would be a, a big switch. Um, but the thing that really made an impression on me and still does actually is that he was very supportive about me doing what I wanted to do to the point that I don't actually think he's ever told me that like, this is what your PhD has to include. Um, he certainly made suggestions and, uh, seeks to improve my work. I know that, but yeah, he's been very supportive in, in me figuring out what it is that students care about best and trying to tailor their experience towards their interests. And, that was the thing that really did it for me because I had some other, other possibilities and some of them were really, really good, but none of them were quite as, as, uh, quite as open as the experience I've now had here at OSU. So you kind of had that creative freedom to really yeah. explore what you wanted to do, what you decided was carabid beetles. Yeah, that I wanted to stick with carabid beetles. And, and then it was, of course, while I was here that things sort of shifted a little bit. And then I got very interested in carabid beetle sperm, which wasn't something that when I applied that I, my application had no mention of that. <laughs> um, and that was something that happened while I was here as a, as a PhD student. And yeah, I'm actually really grateful to be in a position where when I expressed my interest in this subject, I wasn't told like, uh, you didn't say you were doing that. So no, you can't shift it mid gear. Instead, I, I was able to, and I'm actually really happy how uh, my PhD plans have turned out. So uh, the, I guess the one last, we're coming to the end, but the, the question that actually comes up there is as you you become interested in these things, mm -hmm. right, you, you kind of might delve into topics that your advisor might not have a ton of experience in, right? Mm -hmm. So how, how do you handle that as a graduate student venturing off into the forest without your you know, your, yeah. your advisor and without someone, you know, kind of showing you the way that's been there before? Um, that's a good question. Uh, I think, I think a lot of it is, is, has been for me, um, relying on other people, like cold calling, sending people mm -hmm. <laughs> emails who I've never met before and, uh, telling them what I'm doing and, uh, what my interests are. A lot of that has been getting familiar with the literature and trying to load in my brain, what other people are doing and is what I'm doing reasonable. That's always been one of the hard ones is like, mm -hmm. am I doing this right? I feel like I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> and, and so that's also been very helpful. And I've, I've also got thankfully some, some really great committee members who have also really helped me along the way to try and, especially with some of these topics that, um, uh, that I, that are really new, um, to me. Um, I guess then that leads us to our other, Last question, what's next yeah. for you, Antonio? Yeah. What's next? To, well, to actually do this stuff. Yeah. So I've done, I've done have some. have to come back and tell us about what you find. <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. No, so uh, I'm, I'm at a stage where I've, uh, and I'm actually really happy I'm at, I'm at this stage, where I've, I've been able to sort of put pen to paper and list out the things that I want to do and um, it's been really good for me because it's it's helped me focus. And I feel like I've got a much better sense of this stuff is interesting. It's so cool, but I don't have enough time. And I'm going to just like, I'm going to have to leave that for, 
or later, or maybe mm-hmm. maybe I'll I'll never be the person who gets to do that, and that's okay. And so it's been good, <laughs> really good for me to know, like, okay, this is what I'm doing. Let me lay it out, and it makes it easier to makes it easier to do a bunch of stuff. It makes it easier to apply for grants. It makes it easier to talk to people. It makes it easier to do this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so it's it's definitely a lot more fun than being in this sort of position where you're like, ah, I don't really know. I mean, they they expo- like. That phase was still very important for me, but it, I'm, I'm definitely happy with where I'm at. So my next step, getting back to your question, is to, is to actually gather these data, you know, start, uh, continue dissecting a bunch of uh, beetles, studying their sperm, inferring a tree that's got all these uh, species and really good sampling, and using that to study the diversification of these really cool traits. Awesome. Okay. And then, of course, we have our traditions on inspiration dissemination, where first we ask you to give advice to whoever you want, really, but something relevant to your life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And so uh, what advice do you have for our listeners? Uh, To be open to uh, new experiences and that I think a lot of, and to try and figure out who you are, because there's a lot about uh, grad school that requires that as sort of a first step before you can know what it is that you want to do. You need to figure out what it is that really interests you. And uh, for me, it was really knowing that I really enjoy diversity and I want to be in a position that gets me doing that and studying that. And I think also just um, uh, that I've really benefited from the advice and help of others and looking for looking for mentors and looking for experience. So I mean, I'm sure I'm pre- preaching to the choir there, but that was also really That's important. That's why we ask every week. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I think one thing you said earlier is definitely true that I've run into is graduate school is not like, it's not always a perfectly laid path. Yeah. And that you are going to do a lot of work figuring out where you want to go mm-hmm. next. <laughs> um, and then our final tradition is to ask you to provide us a song mm-hmm. to play you out kind of act as the credits for your great interview. And uh, what song have you provided for us? And what does that song mean to you? So I picked uh, the Rolling Stones' Beast of Burden. And I was trying to think of a song that got at some aspect of uh, male-female interactions. And <laughs> there were obviously a bunch that were that were out there. Some There's were been a few songs, right? <laughs> quite a few songs actually. Um, some were misogynistic, and I and I tried to avoid those. And um, this was kind of one that I settled on because I I like the way it sounds. All right, very cool. Here it is, "Beast of Burden" by the Rolling Stones, and you are listening to Inspiration Dissemination. We just had a great talk with Antonio Gomez from Integrative Biology. Thank you for coming on the show to Thank talk you to us. For having me, you are invited to come on again at the end. <laughs> right on. I'll never look at Beatles the same. <laughs> Good. <laughs> and we're on every Sunday at seven o'clock, right here on KBVR Corvallis eighty-eight point seven FM. Here it is for your listening pleasure. Beast of Burden by the Rolling Stones.